Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us here at INC Live for the UFC 291 preview show. My name is Carl Birmage, and I am joined by the man on the right-hand side of my screen. He is the Oppenheimer to my Barbie. It's Joe Neal. Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Fantastic one. I need to see Oppenheimer, but I know I'm probably going to see both at one point. Yeah. Uh, is that glad you're going to be doing over girlfriend? Probably both, admittingly. <laughs> I like Margot Robbie, but I'm not going to tell her that. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be the Devon to your Bubba, even though historically I used to be the Spike Dudley. But <laughs> yeah, you got promoted. Yeah, I you know now I'm the one getting the tables. I used to be the one being thrown through it by Kane, but now I'm the one getting them. Yeah. <laughs> Does that mean I'm going to be a champion of um, TNA wrestling when it's on its last last legs? Yeah, and then you also get Velvet Sky. So I approve. Yeah. You know, and I said, I, I, at least I'm not the perv cam, you know, <laughs> <laughs> did I, I did not know that was a thing until OSW. I'm glad they haven't introduced that in the UFC, but like knowing what Dana White <laughs> is introducing, I wouldn't be surprised. At yeah, first, the gimmick fights, then the perv cam. It's, it's all profit from here on out. <laughs> I'm telling you, we have a stone's throw away from there being an interlude during the pay-per-view for Power Slap. Oh, my God. If that happened, I think, I don't know, I'd be so horrified. Nothing to be <laughs> horrified about, though, when it comes to our next pay-per-view, because we are here to talk about UFC 291. It's been a busy uh, couple of weeks for the UFC. Of course, we just had the London card, which took place yesterday. Uh, Joe will have a recap on that one uh, coming up on the channel. It's probably online right now as we speak, Joe. Yeah, probably. And uh, I get to talk and laugh a little bit uh, about the card. Uh, but hey, I was actually, uh, it was a pretty good card because it, you know, it happened earlier in the day for me. So I kind of missed it. I'm thinking it was at the normal time and I got to go back and watch it and it was, I'm very happy I got to watch it. And in seven days time, we're going to be talking about uh, what could be one of the most action-packed cards of the year. USC 291 mm -hmm. is taking place from Salt Lake City and the BMF title is back up for grabs. So we're going to talk about a few of the X's and O's about the card before we actually dive into the prelims and then the five-fight main card. As mentioned before, we are back in Salt Lake City. So it's the second fight of what I believe is a five-year contract with the owners of the building. And I have mixed feelings about this one, Joe, because on one hand... I've always been somebody who likes when the UFC goes to different places. It's one of the big issues I've yep. had with the Apex is that instead of going to like Prague or maybe to Berlin or doing an event in uh, Asia time and again, all those cards are now taking place in the Apex, which I'm a little bit bored of. And if it's not the Apex, then it's T-Mobile, uh, Florida or Texas. So I am glad we're going yeah. to somewhere which is a little bit different. However, the last time we had a card, UFC 278 in Salt Lake City. And there was a lot of fighters that underestimated just how bad the altitude was. Oh, yeah. I, I always think of, uh, I believe it was, I remember the exact number of the card. You're really good with numbers. You might be able to remember. But it was, I remember Ryan Bader, Rampage was on the card. But Czech Congo, Marku Huntu was, uh, I have to call him that, Pride fan. Uh, <laughs> Mark Huntu. And, um but uh was on that card and mark hunt pieced up check no no it was uh it was mark hunt and someone else but mark hunt just couldn't finish him they both just gassed out it wasn't think... i don't think it was check congo no but it Kong... was in colorado 
Yeah, I think the um, yeah Johnson versus Beard it was like 2016. I think January 2016. Yeah. So it was a little bit before then. Let me because I remember it was that card. I'm now, <laughs> dear Google. Um, but yeah, it was on that card, and they were in like out. They were in altitude, and it was just horrendous. Like all the that heavyweight fight got bad. It might have been. My my brain also thinks it was Ben Rothwell, as well. It was no, that was Japan. That card happened, but anyway, regardless, like, uh, luckily there's no heavyweight fights on the main card. There They're is all one on the prelims, weight. and there's also yeah. like heavyweight bout. But one thing I do think the UFC have done well is they have restricted it primarily to the lower weight classes. So if there are yeah. altitude issues, it's not going to be as important. And mm-hmm. are you personally a, a fan of sort of like the high altitude UFC cards? Do you want them to go into places like Salt Lake City, Colorado? I, I I think it's a mixed bag. I think you really have to be smart in how you book it. Um, and I personally would like to see like encouraging fighters to go there early to acclimate in their training. So like it's probably the most famous example. One second, try not to sneeze. Yeah. If it makes you feel any better, Joe, I have been feeling really under the weather as well. So we're both walking wounded right now. Yeah, for me, I, I just allergies, I guess. I, I was random. Uh, but yeah, so um, the most famous example is Canaan for Doom, you know, which took place in Mexico City, Elevation. And Verdum went like a month before the fight to get used to it. And Kane's like, I'll be fine. And he gassed out in that fight. You know, Kane did, and uh, which is very odd for that era of Kane Velasquez to gas. Cardio Kane, yeah, like the guy who's in round five throwing a hundred significant r- strikes around, basically at heavyweight. You know, um, and it was kind of shocking and kind of alarming. Um, so I think they need to kind of almost not mandate it necessarily, but really encourage. Hey, you might want to go there a little early, and I know. That's going to lead into another thing of fighters going, I don't have the money to go there mm-hmm. early. So I have a solution for that. It's pretty simple. I don't know why the UFC hasn't been doing it. Um, it's paying the fighters what they should be paid. Yes. Not 12 yeah, and 12 contact, contracts off the contender series. Yeah. I, th- I, have a, I have a strange feeling that if they just paid the fighters well, that that wouldn't be an issue. But that being said, if you, I think you need to kind of be ready for it, uh, like mentally and physically, because it is a whole new beast. I've been at elevation, and it is insane. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little insane, in like how different it is. Um, and I was a kid, and I was noticing it, so I can't imagine what me, you know, almost thirty, gonna be like if I was in elevation. Now I'd probably be rolled down you know um but uh yeah i i I like it and i don't like it's it's just a mixed bag and i think you have to be a little careful on how you book it because i think what they are doing here is pretty smart in not putting heavyweights on the main card because you know you and me both know that the prelims are for like oh people who aren't really into fights they're gonna watch it and then and it's supposed to incentivize them to by the pay-per-view so maybe not having your headlining fight for that prelim be you know the main fight be a heavyweight fight would be a pretty good idea 
Um, I'm sure we'll talk about that. And we're going to do but... that right now. You read my mind, Joel. Mm-hmm. Read minds mm-hmm. think alike. Mm-hmm. And we are the best minds there are. Well, apart from Luke and Brian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those guys just have the edge. Luke, Luke Thomas speaks more Spanish than me, I think, which is embarrassing for me. So we're going to talk about these prelims in a bit more detail now. You can see those on our screen here. And Joel mentioned before there that the prelim headliner is going to be a heavyweight bout as Derek Lewis takes on Marcus Rogerio de Lima. And I have to say, I've been a bit taken by surprise because like Derek Lewis has always been considered as one of the sort of staples of the UFC sort of top five, top six range. But mm-hmm. he has had some bad losses on his record recently and he's down to number 11. And a lot of people are starting to think, you know, hey, he's, what, 36, 37 years old now. Is this maybe Derek Lewis's last stand? Is this the end of him if he was to lose? I think if he loses, it's, you know, about time to write him off. And I don't, I hate saying that, but uh, I think it'd probably be time to write him off as, like, that top five guy. Uh, I don't, I, I'm, I've kind of written him off as a title contender, personally. Yeah, I, I don't think he's going but... to get back to a belt. No, I, I don't think he'll ever compete for it. But I mean, I, I think if he loses this, it's probably like him taking on like a name like Tom Aspinall or Taito Ivasa again or Pavlovich again, like any of those guys like that. Probably not happening. Um, and uh, it's kind of shocking to see his downfall, but um, it's also really hard to count him out. I think. What do you think's been the biggest factor? Do you think it is just age catching up with him? Or because when you look at his losses, like the Taito Avasa loss, he was winning that fight and then Ty obviously caught him in a big flurry. It was a chaotic sort of heavyweight mm-hmm. brawl. And then Sergei Spivak, who I think is criminally underrated. I think he has got a lot better over these last couple of years. And he took advantage of the fact that Derek has these limitations on the ground. Um mm-hmm. Is it father time? Is it the division catching up? What's what do you think is the biggest cause? I think if you look at it, he's lost to uh, Taitui Vasa, Pavlovich, and Spivak, back to back to back on all three of those fights, and two of those guys are part of that new guard coming up, while another guy feels like, in my opinion, the current better version of him, in a sense. Um, but I think a lot of it's durability. As well, I think it's just like father time and durability on top of fighting these younger guns that don't have the wear and tear of him on his body and his, you know, everything. Because he's 38. This is what he's, yeah, he's, you know, coming up on 40 fights as a heavyweight. And like, it's kind of, it's kind of easy to see that when you're hitting that 45 range, you, no one has the fountain of youth access that Andre Arlovsky has. Because I've said it a thousand times, I'll say it a million more. He's going to be decisioning guys on Apex cards until we're in our 70s and 80s. So it's just kind of the nature of the game. Um, he's going to break Couture's record. You know, I'm convinced at this point. But I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I, I think it's a lot of it is just he's fading. He's slowing down. And he might he probably still has that big power. But he's not able to get himself in positions to land it. And he can't take the shot like he used to be able to take it. Is there anybody else that stands out for you on the prelims? Uh, last time I said Miranda Maverick, she lost. So I will be omitting that one. Uh, Trevin Giles is always pretty entertaining. 
Um, if Roman Kopilov is the guy I remember, yeah, Roman Kopilov, he, he seems pretty good, honestly, to me. I'm glad uh, you mentioned that Giles versus Bonfine match because I think that's a real litmus test for Bonfine because he had that big yeah. highlight real kill, uh, beat Terrence McKinney on his UFC debut. Trevor Giles yeah. is someone who sort of, I'm willing to put him in that sort of welterweight action alley. So he's in there yeah. with sort of like the Nico Prices, the Randy Browns of the world, where you can expect to get these sort of entertaining sort of mid-card brawls. So it's going to be a good mm-hmm. test to see how good Bonfine is. I'm very curious to see how good he is because he's a very good grappler. Uh, like he he snatches necks pretty easily as well. So I'm very curious about that one. The other one is Jake Matthews taking on Darius Flowers, who has like a lot of weird experience in like boxing and then like grappling as well. So that's kind of an interesting one to me because I think Jake Matthews, while he is anti-fighters getting paid, um, he does have the ability to put on good fights. And Matthew Semmelsberger as well. Is because uh, he's always. It's pretty hard to count him out. Is Matthew still like what twenty five, twenty six? I feel like he's been in the UFC for like goodness knows how long, and he's still a kid. Yeah, he's he just turned thirty. <laughs> like, it's kind of wild. Like he he's just turned thirty, and uh, he what? How when was it? When did he join the UFC? I think he, was he joined like 19, it in 2020. twenty twenty. Yeah, no, he joined it at twenty or twenty twenty. He joined it, but it feels like I've seen. I feel like it feels like he's been around forever. And he also has an amateur fight against William Knight, the the you know slow lumbering doesn't do anything kind of guy at two o five. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh. So if there are any prelims that you are interested in, then please list those in the comments below because we are very curious to see what fights you would like us to cover in a bit more detail when we do further preview shows. But now, though, we're going to be going on to the main card. Now, there have been a couple of changes to the card. So we're doing this based off Marcel Dorf's most recent card order. So this may change around. So we do apologize if things are out of sync as the card changes throughout the week. But the fight we have listed up here is taking place in the welterweight division. And it is Stephen Wonderboy Thompson taking on Michelle Barrera. Number 7 versus number 15. Originally supposed to be a prelim fight, which really took me by surprise given how action-packed this match could be. But the Paolo Costa fight was cancelled. Thompson versus Pereira gets moved up. Uh, Stephen Thompson comes in as a minus 200 favourite. Pereira at 170. Do you think the bookmakers are on the right lines here? Do you think Thompson should be that much of a favourite? I personally think Wonderboy is the is like a really safe bet in this fight because Bejeda is... I feel like Bejeda is hard to... to really stand on as like an, on your pick on him. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's really hard to, because he's such a chaotic, wild guy. He can be very thoughtful and, you know, uh, you know, technical, so to speak. But sometimes he just wants to run off the cage 500 times, do 50 backs, backflips instead of finishing the guy. And all right, now he's gassed out. Like, and I just lost some money there. So in terms of gambling and betting on, Who's going to win? I think Wonderboy's the safer pick. but uh, So I think he does deserve those odds. But at the end of the day, it's also really hard to, you know, I think this matchup's really interesting. Yeah, and hopefully so it, it's going to live up to the billing as well because we've got two strikers. Uh, Wonderboy, a bit more karate-based, prefers to counter-strike. Uh, Pereira, as you know, sort of like the MMA wild man as he's sort of built mm-hmm. up his reputation, especially outside the UFC. But... Ever since the Tristan Connolly fight, which 
was a very embarrassing loss for him, bearing in mind he missed weight as well against a guy who's naturally a 145er. Since then, five wins in a row. Admittedly, the last one was over a year ago. But we are starting to see Michel Pereira sort of realize, hey, I need to stop being this clown. I'm going to try and take things a little bit seriously. And the uh, five-five winning streak, Ponzinibbio, Fialo, Nico Price, Kalen Williams, and Zalin Imadayev. So he has started to pick it up. Mm-hmm. I'm sure decent names. Like, yes. Um, none of those guys are, I think, like, maybe except Imazayov probably is, like, the only, like, bad one on there. But, you know, all those guys on there are, like, legitimately talented mid-card, mid-level, you know, welterweights at the least, you know. And, uh, I mean, I love my boy Pontanibio, but, you know, his days are past him. But that fight's very good. He's looked very good. Um, yeah, he's I, – I really hope he keeps rising. But And so this fight has really caught my eye. Yeah. Um, so obviously we talked about Pereira a little bit there. We'll talk about Wonder Boy, some of the sort of X's and O's regarding him. So he is coming into this fight off a win. He beat Kevin Holland in a UFC main event in December. And along with Kevin Holland, we've got wins over Jeff Neal, Vincent Luque, Jorge Masvidal, Rory McDonald, Johnny Hendricks, Jake Ellenberger, and Robert Whittaker when he fought a welterweight. So a big who's who of some top welterweight contenders there. And mm-hmm. Even though I don't think Wonderboy is ever going to fight for a belt again, I think, bearing in mind he's 40 years old, father time does catch up with people, I do think he is a great litmus test for guys like Pereira to see whether or not they are truly elite. I agree. I 100% agree. Uh, Before the Gilbert Burns fight, I actually thought Wonderboy was probably a win or two away from getting the title, or for going for the title, and I thought he was an interesting matchup, if not almost outright bad for a Kamara Usman, who a lot of his shots aren't from very far out. They're from, he wants to kind of get in close and get a hold of you. And a guy like Thompson, in my mind, isn't going to let him do that. So, uh, but, you know, things change, and I'm kind of with you on that. I think he is a, probably the best litmus test for a guy to break into that truly elite uh, area, which I think is very interesting, given him the Pajeda matchup. And how do you think... Thompson's style has evolved because obviously he came in with karate based background and we have seen a lot of karate fighters I mean there are exceptions like Machida obviously one of the big ones MVP Mm. so there are guys with that karate style who can find success but more often than not the first instinct is take him down and limit him on the ground yeah we haven't really seen that all too much from Wonderboy for the majority of his career it's only sort of recently we've had like the Bilal Muhammad's and the Gilbert Burns exploiting that how do you think Wonderboy has been able to sort of translate his karate style to find success in the UFC? I think a lot of it's movement, like his footwork. I think that's why he's losing a lot, a little bit more of these fights uh, recently to these wrestlers is before it was really hard to get a hold of the guy. Uh, I got to cover on the retro review, shameless plug. I have no shame on this one. Uh, I got to cover probably one of the best fights in MMA history, I think, in Wonderboy, uh, Tyrone Woodley. And Woodley had a little bit of a hard time getting hold of him to put him on his back uh, at first. And he almost kind of had to corral him and cut him off with some very good offensive footwork as well. So uh, like a lot of wrestlers historically don't have the footwork. They just kind of chase, you know, they don't really cut the cut the ring off from him and anything like that. So him having that footwork really kind of helped and that speed from his youth uh, was really helping him avoid situations where you can't get taken down, you know, where you're not getting taken down, um, so to speak. 
Um, I think like always like an interesting idea is uh, <laughs> for years ago um, when Habib came back from injury and fought Barboza, he chased Barboza on a straight line and Barboza just never capitalized on it. And it's like, I remember watching that go, wow, if Habib can't make weight and goes up to 170, I wonder if he could pull, I wonder how that would go with Wonder Boy. Because Wonder Boy, very quick footwork, but he's kind of slowed down. People are now able to get a hold of him. And on the ground, he's decent, but he's not ex- exemplary off his back. Like he's married to uh, a member of the Machado family. But, that, you know, uh, as AJ Lee once said, uh, talent isn't necessarily transmitted <laughs> a certain way. <laughs> But no, I, I think he has. He's a purple belt under the Machados, which I hold the Machados uh, in a higher level of respect and uh, pedigree over the Gracies personally. Um, and so I think that's good, but it's you know it, it just isn't enough, you know, against like a very strong wrestler. So it would be interesting to see, bearing in mind the sort of grappling frailties that Wonder Boy's been shown recently. Uh, mm-hmm. Michelle Pereira is primarily known as a striker, and I expect it to be a primarily a striking-based match. But we did see against Diego Sanchez, Michelle Pereira having a lot of success, taking Sanchez down, holding him there, and if it wasn't for the illegal knee, he would have won that fight, using mm-hmm. primarily a grappling-based style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and take the, the ultimate defense against this style, take the man down, yeah. you know. Joshua uh, Fabius yeah. only win. It's, I, I still find myself watching many documentaries about the man. It's alarming. Because like, um, I, I look at the analytics on the YouTube channel, and obviously, admittedly, they're not doing too well because people wouldn't watch the Ali versus Inoki video. Shame on you. But one of the videos fantastic. that always still seems to do well with the algorithm is the Fabia video. There's something about yeah. that story that just appeals to people. It's haunting. It's the first cult I think I've seen, you know, outside of Conor McGregor's fan base. Still got it. Oh, (laughs) still got it. Still got it. But yeah, it's like the first real cult I've seen in MMA. It's like kind of haunting. I'm sure there's other instances of cult-like behavior, but that is an absolute cult. Um, It's just, just haunting stuff. I, mm. um, beige frequency has like a, multiple hour long escapade over Diego Sanchez and that and it is uh it's a it's a story it's kind of depressing admittingly but but yeah I I, I think Michelle Pajeda it was in uh who I, I always forget his name it was the Russian that slapped him at the weigh-ins I think that might have been yeah Imadayev uh he took him down he just because he, he was beating him up slapping him the entire fight basically and then he just got a single, turned it over, and got a, you know, slammed him on the ground, took this back, and choked him out like it was nothing. Made him look like he didn't belong. And uh, I don't think it's out of the question for Pajeda to, you know, attempt that against here, against uh, Wonder Boy, especially because he is very quick. Yep. Uh, there is one big concern that I do have when it comes to Michelle Pereira, and we've seen this in a lot of his fights, and I think it's going to be amplified in Salt Lake City. Cardio. Yeah. Yes. He cuts a lot of weight. I've seen him fight at like 203. You know, he is a, he, like, if you just look at him compared to most welterweights, he is massive. He is just a big old dude. And we're fighting an elevation. 
maybe, 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 you know, maybe we shouldn't have too many fights at elevation. <laughs> I'm starting to come, come around. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's going to be a big factor in the fight. And that's why it's really hard for me to pick Pajeda here. It's the big thing that's uh, shirking me from picking him as well. Uh, yeah. So I am going to be leaning towards Wonderboy for this one. I do Agreed. think there is value in a Pereira win based off him having a grappling advantage and Wonderboy being 40 years old, starting to slow down mm. a little bit. There is all potential that Pereira could catch him early. But I think the longer the fight, this, the longer this fight goes, the more I favor Wonderboy. So I'm going to be picking Wonderboy to win this one. Unanimous decision. Um, because one other thing about Michelle Pereira, like people look at the 11 losses next to his name as something to hold mm. against him. Only had been stopped twice, and only once by KO. He has a hell of a chin, given how much he cuts. Oh, yeah. It, it's When you think about how much weight he cuts, and he's only been finished like that once, it's alarming. Uh, I, I, I think, I think funny enough, if there's any fight that's going to be a draw on this card, it could probably be this one. I could see Pajeda getting that 10-8 round one, being gassed, and surviving 10-9s from Wonder Boys in two and three. I could potentially see that, but I, I, I think it'll be. I think Bejeda wins the first round, then Wonder Boy takes back round two, and then con- comfortably wins round three. I could possibly see a 10 8 for Wonder Boy in round three if Pereira is as gassed yeah. as what he could potentially be. That is true. Yeah. We could, it could be a, a draw that way, even. Yep. Um, but I, I, I do think, I agree 10,000% with you. I think the, far, the longer this fight goes, Wonder Boy is just going to you know, keep winning, which will make my friend Cameron happy. He's a, uh, he's still relatively new to MMA. I've been trying to dip him into the hardcore. So, you know, uh, fountains, I guess you could say. And, uh, uh wonder boy is his early pick as his favorite. Good call. Smart. Uh, man. Fantastic guy. Fantastic. Yeah. Great ambassador for the sport. I will say, I always love talking to so like, so like new, new to me, MMA fans, because I'll mm-hmm. always ask them like who their favorite fighter is. And based on who they say, I can tell how much of a diehard they are. Because mm-hmm. I used to work with this lady, and she followed MMA, and I said, who's your favorite fighter? And I expected, like, oh, Connor or Paddy or someone like that. Rose Namajunas. And I thought, Fantastic you pick. know you know your stuff. Yeah, that's my that's uh, my family. Whenever I hear them talk about fighters, I can usually tell how much they've been watching. And uh, shout out to my Aunt Emerald. Uh, she's fantastic and hilarious. And she was uh, laughing at me because I used to talk about how attractive I thought Joanna was. And the next family get together, I saw she r- runs up to me, and she goes, "Like, uh, so how did your boogie woman do, huh? Hmm. <laughs> you know, because and then she was like, oh, I love Rose so much because of that fight.' I'm like, "Yep, thanks." Mm-hmm. And it was like a couple days after, so I knew she had to have watched it. And I was like, my, I was like, I'm glad you watched it at least. <sighs> I will say, just going off on a tangent, someone asked me what my favorite INC video was. And it didn't get many views. It's probably the Yuana retrospective. I really enjoy yeah. that one. Yeah, uh, me too. I, I really like that one. Uh, I was really hoping you would say my debut on uh, INC Live. Um, you know, that's a little hurtful, I guess. But yeah, we'll move on. <laughs> we shall no, move on. We shall move on. We're going to the welterweight uh, division now. And it is the number 12 seed, Michael Chiesa, who is taking on the unranked Kevin Holland. Despite this, however... Holland is the bookmaker's favorite, minus 150 to plus 130 for Chiesa. Now, this is the first time that Michael Chiesa has fought since he lost to Sean Brady back in November 2021. 
Now, since then, Chiesa has had a lot of media commitments. He's usually on the desk for the UFC these days. So, bearing this in mind, they sort of carved out this sort of second career for himself. Are you a bit surprised to see him back at all? No, I, I, I've been waiting for him to come <laughs> back, admittingly. I'm a, I'm a Chiesa fan, so I've been praying and waiting for him to come back. Because I, I, thought, I thought if he would have beaten Luke, he was yes. such a, like... He was right there, you know, and uh, but that fight's also incredible. Um, like that's one of the most action-packed back and forth fights for like the two minutes. It's it's there, but uh, yeah, Kiesa like he's kind of fun to me at uh, one seventy. You know, he because he, he he feels like a stronger version of himself than he was at one fifty five. Um, he does struggle to get finishes a little bit more at welterweight, probably. You know, because of the strength to strength style of submission attempts he goes for, I feel like. But uh, he, man, he's a, like, I, I was really thinking he was going to, like, just right there. And I know the Sean Brady fight annoyed him a good amount as well. But, man, I, I'm I'm actually kind of stunned he's the, the underdog here. There's very few guys, in my opinion, who can make a grappling heavy style entertaining. I do put Kiesa in that bracket i do enjoy watching him fight he's sort of uh, he's not sort of like a scrambler in the same way that someone like tim yeah. elliott is but i just love his persistence his doggedness he's re he's relentless in there to me i mean you, he's like a much more entertaining darren elkins to me that's a good good comparison actually yeah because elkins will make it sort of like dirty and grimy on the feet and then mm. try and chase you to get you to the ground and then when he gets you to the ground he kind of stalls on you a little bit which is always like my only entertaining complaint of darren elkins um but kiesa when he's on top of you he's moving he's moving and grooving trying to work trying to do what he can like he like i mean it broke my heart but his carlos condit fight you know he you know he he worked constantly against condit who's also very active from his bottom from the bottom as well but i i, I like watching kiesa i'm a fan i'm a good fan of his yeah and what would you say are kiesa's biggest strengths he seems pretty, like, he seems pretty strong at welterweight still. I don't know if he'll have the strength advantage in this fight since he's fighting someone who was a former middleweight and he is a former lightweight. Uh, but um, he seems pretty strong at at um, at welterweight. He's all like like we said before, just relentless in his attack in the clinch. He's always looking for the trip or he's looking to get the takedown. Um, he's also kind of smart on how he attacks or how he wants to get you to the ground. Um, so I, I think the example is looking at how he took down Al Quinta in the tough finale that won him tough. Uh, and then in his prior fight before that, which was James Vick. So against James Vick, the long, lankier fighter, I think he shot a low single and was able to get him down. And it's, it's really easy to get under the center of gravity of the taller fighter. And he was able to kind of adjust his shot to get him down. And then with uh, Al Quinta. I remember, I think he got him down in the clinch. Like, he was able, because he's the taller guy in that fight and the stronger, bigger guy in that fight, and he just kind of muscled him down. And I think that is really interesting. Usually you'll see, like, a lot of grapplers that are, like, in the mid-level. Like, a mid-level wrestler will say they have their one way of taking a guy down that they like. And if that isn't working, they'll still try it four or five times, and then they'll look at some other way. Kiesa... Usually his first attempt works. If not, he has a second way or a third way. Like he, he's very good at attacking 
taking the fight to the ground in a multitude of ways, I think. And he is also very good at getting people to give up the back. And that's become oh, yeah. a real X factor in MMA in recent years. Ferocious back taker. Absolutely. Yeah. There, are, there are, however, struggling to get my words out here. That's one <laughs> problem when you speak to a microphone is you, you sort of have two words which you sort of choosing between which one to use and you end up using sort of like an amalgamation of the two. <laughs> so it just sounds like nonsense. There are right two there uh, pieces to this puzzle, however, and we're going to talk about the second one here, which is Kevin Holland, 24-9 and nine record. He is back in the winner's column by, by beating your boy, Santiago Ponzinibbio, UFC 287. And bearing in mind where Kevin Holland sort of like came to the public conscious, which was not getting the contract on the contender series, apparently, based on what you hear, making a pass to Laura Sanko, then getting signed to the UFC is basically a punishment when he got put up against Thiago Santos. Since then, though, wins over Ponzi, Tim Means, Cowboy Oliveira, Jacare, Buckley, Fluffy Hernandez, GM3, and back on the regional scene, Jeff Neal. It's a, mm-hmm. been a really colourful career, bearing in mind where he started. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was actually my fighter of the year in 2020. Oh, he was amazing that year. Yeah, he was the, the star. It was a horrible time to live in, and having fights on, on almost a weekly basis was like one of the few like li- like entertaining things that was ongoing outside of like video games or streaming The Sopranos for the fifth time, and uh, which I will never complain about that. But <laughs> um, yeah, he was fantastic, and it all started because he hit on Laura Sanko. So he, you know he has a man of culture because Laura Sanko is a beautiful woman. I, I love my girlfriend to death. And if something were to happen, Laura Sanko, I would love if she comforted me while I was going through that tragedy. Of <laughs> um, That being said, uh, yeah, he's back in the winner's column uh, breaking after breaking my heart. But, uh, man, he's good. Like, he's a very good fighter. Yeah, and I think the well-twit move has been a big help for him. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I did think he was a little bit undersized for um, middleweight. I do think there's some advantages there. I think that the power maybe carries quite well at a higher weight, but it mm-hmm. seems to have he doesn't seem to have lost any of his pep by dropping down to welterweight. I think he's got good size and range there. Um, and I would be interested to see when it comes to Kiesa is Kiesa's going to try his best to make this a grappling heavy fight and exploit the sort of limitations that Holland seemed to show as a middleweight. But people forget this guy is a black belt under Travis Luter. He knows some things on the ground, so I would be interested to see how he would fare against a welterweight grappler. Yeah, because against like, you know, the Marvin Vittori's and Derek Brunson's who just laid and prayed on him for three rounds, he kind of, in in my opinion at least, uh, he kind of just you know, like couldn't, they were just too big for him to do anything too big and too strong. So I think that was like a size difference. And I hate bringing this up because of who it is, but, uh, against Hamzat, no one's been able to do anything off their back against that guy. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's Yet. not, a, he's not a proper welterweight. Yeah. Count. But Paulo Costa is going to, you know, could potentially punch him into secret juice formula. So, um, you know, that's, I hope that fight happens. Oh, that sounds so much fun. But um, so it, it is interesting to see how he deals with this aggressive grappler that isn't, 
you know, like a middleweight in welterweight's clothing, so to speak, you know, or just an outright huge middleweight like Vittori. Uh, and uh, Brunson seems like a bigger size middle, middleweight to me as well. So I'm, I'm, that is interesting. I feel like, I, you know, he has that black belt. I feel like I've never seen it. I like, do I think that, remember covering a video. I was doing a video, I think it was like fighters you never knew fought in Bellator. And it included mm-hmm. Kevin Holland. And he submitted his opponent off his back. And that's like yeah. the only time I've really properly seen it in one of his fights. It seems like it's it's kind of like Vanderlei Silva's black belt. Like Vanderlei Silva, by all accounts, is a very high level jujitsu guy, according to like people that have like trained with him and stuff. And but he has a, a black belt. And when was the last time you saw him use it? Like he just kind of uses it defensively, off the, on the ground. And then like it's kind of the same way with Kevin Holland, but I feel like to a much or lesser lesser extent as well. It's like I, I don't I think outside of the I mean, I've never even seen that fight. I watched the, the video about it uh, when he was in Bellator. But, I mean, outside of, like, some, when he gets submissions, he's usually hurting a guy, then chasing the submission, you know, uh, like um, Tim Means, you know. And um, it's it's never, like, he's, he's never, like, you know, really working for it and getting it himself. Like, he's never snatching it. Uh, but he did. we did see a little bit of his defensive grappling against uh, Dirty Cowboy, Alex Oliveira. Um, I love that. I love that. That's your nickname for him. That's technically Jack Slack's nickname for him because he cheats in every fight. And I was like, no, he doesn't, does he? And I watched like a bunch of Alex Oliveira fights, and I was like, yeah, he cheats in every fight. Holy, holy hell! Like, wow. He's a he's a dirty cheater. It's awesome. I sure. think one of the big X factors when it comes to this fight could be the footwork battle because that's something that seems to have tripped up Kevin Holland in a lot of his previous fights. When he has the better footwork. He's very good at controlling range and setting up his power shots. But when he doesn't, that's when the overhands start coming in. That's when he starts getting a little bit reckless. So if Chiesa is able to frustrate him on the feet by not giving him these opportunities to throw, then it's going to create the opportunities for Chiesa to take him down and control the fight. So I am interested to see how that happens because, I mean, Kevin Holland has the power to put out Michael Chiesa. Absolutely. It's just whether or not he's going to have the opportunity to do it. That's a really good point you made there. I don't. I don't really consider Kevin Holland a very good. I guess we'll call it back striker off his back foot, like a back foot striker. He doesn't really seem that way to me. He seems like he wants to kind of create that pace of his own, and then land the shot, and then okay, now we're here. Like now I'm the aggressor. You know, the I don't really see him being the guy who's you know knocking guys off his back foot. Like he's a little too wild whenever that happens. And I mean that is what made the Wonder Boy fight just spectacular, you know. But same on the same hand, um, might not be that way against a guy who's just a relentless wrestler. Which way are you going for this one? I got Kiesa by decision. I wouldn't be surprised if he he submits him. I see this fight kind of being a little similar to the Hamzat fight, just not as dominant. I think he'll probably get him to the ground pretty early and take him down. That said. If Kevin Holland shows that he can take stuff a takedown, Kiesa, one issue, I, I like this about him, but it's not a great habit, is Kiesa will just be like, all right, I'll just go punch in then. And his striking leaves his chin up in the air. Yes. And if if he can't get the takedown, he's going to try and strike to set it up, sadly. And that is where the bomb can you know land. 
I have the same sort of consensus overall. I am picking Chiesa to win this one. There are a couple of uh, sort of exclamation marks, asterisks as it were, which is mm. obviously the striking battle. I think Kevin Holland's going to have the advantage there. But also as well, I think Chiesa can be a little bit complacent when he he can underestimate the grappling ability of his opponent sometimes. We have seen him be submitted. Like He underestimated Luke, got submitted. Underestimated Pettis, got submitted. If Kevin Holland does show this black belt that everyone's been sort of like building up and bigging up for years, could we possibly see another situation? Holland being a little bit better off his back than some people give him credit for. I think like the big thing too in those fights is uh, Kiesa got though that happened. Not so much in the Luke fight. He got knocked to the ground and then they went to the or they got he got punched and then when they went to the ground. But um, I, I could definitely see that. But I, I don't. I don't think so. I, I consider Luke and Pettis a different level of grappler than Kevin Holland. But like I said, I've never seen the black belt, so I could be writing it off and underestimating it myself. So fight number three, and we are going down to the lightweight division here. And it used to be a couple of years ago that people would see this guy's name and be like, "Yes, it's Tony time." These days, it's oh no, it's Tony time. It's Tony time. Which is a really sad sort of introduction to this. It is Tony Ferguson taking on Bobby Green. Uh, Ferguson comes into this one as a plus 265 underdog. You can get Bobby Green at minus 345. I'll start with some of the positives about this fight. I've always been a believer that the UFC, when it comes to these sort of aging veterans, people like the Tony Fergusons, the Bobby Greens, Clay Guidas, Tim Means of the World, it's best to put them against other aging veterans rather than trying to feed them to a prospect. So I am glad that the UFC are doing this with Tony Ferguson. With that being said, though, should this fight be happening at all? Because what I've seen from Tony Ferguson in his past couple of fights, it's it's starting to get a little bit sad watching him. Yeah, I, I, will, I will defend him in one regard. I thought he pieced up Michael Chandler in their first round. Yes. And then then I black out in the beginning of the second round. Um, but so, oh man, it, you know, uh, that highlight, I hate it. I hate watching highlights, and I have to watch that. I'm like, no, I don't want to watch this. Can I skip this? Painful for me. Um, in the Nate Diaz fight, he just looked way too slow. He, he didn't look like himself at all at welterweight. So at least he's got lightweight, which might help out, but... I don't know. Um, I don't know if this defense, fight should happen again. My only defense of the Nate Diaz fight is, yes, again, another veteran versus veteran fight. And also, bearing in mind what the UFC wanted to do with Nate, it's, it was a big sort of two fingers up to them. And it was also a big two fingers up to Hamzat for being an unprofessional meathead and nearly getting the card right. cancelled. Yeah, it was a Nate winning was a pretty nice fingers up moment. I think uh, to the UFC and to everything, but it did suck that Tony had to be a victim in that. Yes. Uh, you know, he was a casualty still. Um, but I don't know if I want this fight happening. Uh, it, it's, I hold Tony Ferguson in such high regard. He's one of my favorite fighters ever. And it just isn't there. Let's look at uh, Tony Ferguson in a bit more detail. Though. Let's try and remember some of the happy things about Tony Ferguson. So it's a 25 and eight record. And his portfolio of lightweights and welterweights as well, because he started his career with welterweight, 
He's up there as some of the best. Donald Cerrone, Anthony Pettis, Kevin Lee, RDA, Edson Barboza, Josh Thompson, Gleason Tivo, and Eve Edwards. So those are some of the top lightweights in the world. He's arguably one of the best fighters to never win a proper UFC title outright. Yeah, he's he's my pick for the best fighter to never win a, the real belt. Um, he never even got a shot at the real belt. You know, he was one of those guys that got hosed over because of Conor McGregor title bureaucracy shenanigans, you know, whenever he should have been in that spot. Like him and him and Habib had some struggles trying to get a title fight for a while. It was interim this, interim that, interim this. And then when they finally did it, here comes the catastrophic knee injury because that matchup is cursed. Uh, and then here comes a multitude of issues. And then the matchup gets cursed again. And Justin get in and he cuts weight for it twice, which I think ruined his career. Um, but he, his, his record and resume, he is, in my opinion, in terms of pure ability, probably the best welter or best lightweight ever. Maybe like it's him or BJ in terms of pure ability, like like no legacy, just the fighter in the cage who's the best by like the eye test. Tony Ferguson or Prime BJ Penn for me. There's something very throwback I feel about Tony. I think that's why he's. Yeah. Fans endear to him so much. There is something that's that sort of old school, 2003, 2004 sort of era UFC. Absolutely, I can definitely see that. He's he feels like a fighter from another era that is beating guys from this era. You know, for a while, a lot of wild spin techniques. Why? Because they're cool. You know, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of dumb training things. That you go, why are you doing that? And, you know, now we know better than to do stupid stuff like this. But then he wins, you know, and you see some benefits of it, like him kicking steel pipes. Like, well, come on, there's way better things you can do than that. And then he actively kicks the opponent's shins when they look to low kick him back. Like, okay, you see some of the things. Why are you doing Wing Chun? Wing Chun might not even be all that applicable in MMA. And it's like, oh, no, he, he has some of the best hand fighting into hand trapping into then el- rollover elbows ever. You know, instead of a back fist, he's implementing his elbows like, oh, this guy's great. You know, and um, like he just feels like an old school guy. Like he's one of those like like John Jones before he had the title. Everyone was saying like this unorthodox striker and wrestler is going to take over the world. And Tony Ferguson, I felt, took that idea and added way more insanity to it and you know that's what we have all these highlights of like one of my favorite moments in mma history is tony going for a spinning elbow and rda and rda it misses rda just goes no then tony throws another one right after and lands it and then he goes yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's just amazing i mean you can just picture tony wearing like the death clutch t-shirt and drinking these like pitbull energy drink Absolutely. I can see him like definitely drinking like those Mickeys, you know, on the Ultimate Fighter. And and to think he has he's been around for a while, but like it still doesn't feel like out of place era from where he's from. He's from the post tough ten era, like when they first, you know, renew redid the uh, training center, they do tough in the tough house and all that first and they first like redid it all. 
and he's from that same season where Brock Lesnar called his team uh, chicken <laughs> and tried to turn it into chicken salad, you know? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, like, he feels like he's more from the, like, tough two, three, and four era. Do you think that part of the issue that Tony has had is him still trying to capture that sort of old-school Tony style? Do you think maybe changing things up to try and cater to his sort of advanced years might be something that might get him a victory here? I think so. I think he needs to be a little bit more wily. I think the hard part is, is he is such a natural athlete. Like, if you look at his, like, life story, he was, like, a multi-level or multi-high-level athlete in high school and chose wrestling because yeah, I think he had scholarships offer for like baseball, basketball, and football as well. But then he took the wrestling one because he just liked it more. Um, scholarship as well, and so he was like a, a mega athlete, and his style primarily used his his athleticism style work. So him slowing down means the style just isn't there. Like he's a very technical striker, sort of. He's a little too wild, and his athleticism helped smooth that edge out. Um, he's a very technical grappler. Um, but you know, I, I think he's almost too stubborn to change his style, sadly. And I think if he kind of took a more methodical, slower-natured approach to cater to where his athleticism is, he could you know, have this not necessarily comeback, but uh, he would have a lot more success, I think, now. And I bring this up because his opponent, Bobby Green, in my opinion, he's a veteran that has done the right things to try and prolong his career. Because, like, Bobby Green has always been sort of like a fighter's fighter. He's been around mm -hmm. for, like, goodness knows how many years. He fought in strike force, But it wasn't really until, I'd probably say around the pandemic time, where he was another one like Kevin Holland who was fighting quite regularly. And I think he got, like, four or five wins in a row fighting on these Apex cards. And a lot of people started realizing, hey, Bobby Green's fighting this weekend. He seems like a fun guy. He's somebody who, he's done the right things. He's done what Tony hasn't done to try and carve out this sort of like niche as an aging veteran. Mm -hmm. Just being like the, using his mind yes. first. Like he, uh, I think like one of the best fights to showcase like, hey, how good is Bobby Green now? is the Fazaya yes. fight. Like, he loses that fight, I think. I think he lost it. That said, he fought a hell of a fight, and he put the fear of God in Fazaya in that last round and uh, just outthought him, almost. Like, he just better cardio, because, you know, and he fought very conservatively and smart to minimize his damage, then tried taking advantage of it, and he just couldn't get the finish. But, like, he is – he's smooth. He still has, like, a very smooth striking style, you know, in terms of, uh, like, his head movement and everything like that. Like, Drew Dober had a hard time getting a hold of him when he did. You know, we saw what happened. But Drew Dober usually does that to people when he hits them like that. And he just kind of uh, – like, he, he, he just knows how to fight with where his athleticism is because he was in a similar boat to Tony. It's almost like this is what Tony should have done. Yes, what he's kind of fighting. Um, I do think there are some concerns I do have with Bobby Green, uh, which mm. is, like, we talk about father time when it comes to Tony, but Bobby Green is, what, 36, 37 years old, 
and mm. bearing in mind that his fighting style it's very sort of hands down you don't know when the punches are coming because you can't see so like the fence that sort of thing it can work offensively but when you don't have the reflexes to get your hands up to block the block the shots that becomes a bit of a concern so i am concerned about whether bobby green is still going to be able able to react to the sort of big mm-hmm. punches when they come i don't think it's going to be an issue with tony because i don't think tony's that sort of one shot striker in the way that someone like a Drew Dober is. But also as well, I've always said that Bobby Green is sort of a bit bit of a a bit of a mindset fighter. He's somebody who needs to have that self-confidence and belief. And once he gets one with, he can rack up two, three, four. But we've got mm. a guy who's winless in his past three. One of those was a non-contest against uh, Jared Gordon. Yep. There may be some self-doubts there. There may be a little bit of a lack of confidence. And that does snowball when it comes to bobby green like i've seen bobby mm. green where he can look like a world beater and other times when he's struggling to beat some quite low level competition he at one point think about this to remember uh, to help to help with your point there is he beat he stopped i quinta retired him then he beats oh i had his name just a second ago to remember it uh i, I, I cannot remember it nasrat uh, H. I cannot remember how to pronounce Hack it. Hackparast. Hackparast. Yeah. See, my 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 poor Skinny southern American Gaslam. tongue. Yeah, actually looks just like him. Uh, my poor southern southern American tongue just ain't just ain't got that kind of movement. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, he was going to fight Makachev like on like one week notice, and people went, you know, he might actually be hot enough to take out Makachev. It didn't happen, but he had us believing that, and he was confident enough to kind of make that, you know, feel. And, like, he, he definitely has, when he's hot, he, the world knows it, and it it affects things, you know? Um, this one, though, I, I, think, I think this is Bobby Green's fight to lose. I think he's probably going to walk away with a, a win here. I'm in the same boat. Um, I don't know if it's going to be by um, knockout or mm-hmm. if it's going to be by decision. I'm leaning towards decision. I don't think Bobby Green has that sort of one-shot power to put away Tony Ferguson. Um, mm-hmm. But I just don't think Tony has it there anymore. Yeah. And I, would I think able... if it goes to the ground, Tony wins, though. Yes. Tony can't finish him on the ground, for sure. Um, but Bobby Green does have that sort of wrestling base himself. Like, he doesn't... Yeah. He uses it mainly defensively, but Bobby Green's very hard to take down these days. That's what was so impressed about the Makachev thing, him just taking him down pretty easily. But um, I think if it goes does go to the ground, it'll be Tony or it'll be Bobby taking Tony down, just to like like maybe to alleviate some pressure from himself. But who knows? I, I think that's the only chance Tony has is like a, an extended grappling exchange. But I think this is Bobby's fight to win. And the worst part is, if this was to happen, it goes the way that we think it's going to go, if the bookmakers think it's going to go. That's Tony Ferguson, this great legendary fighter, six losses in a row. And I think there's only ever been five fighters who've done that in the UFC. And I think mm-hmm. it's Sam Alvey, BJ Penn, Phil Barodi, Elvis Sinisic, and then Hector Lompard, six, six losses in a row. There's only one thing to do if you're Tony Ferguson if you lose this fight. you got to shut down any union talks around you. That's the only way Sam Alvey did it. 
I thought you were going to say fight Phil Baroni. Well, I'd still watch that because I don't like Phil Baroni. I don't think I don't think anybody anymore. likes Phil Baroni. Yeah, there's a reason I didn't bring him up very well in that uh, retro review recently. I was like, he got knocked out here, and I almost made like said like good, <laughs> but I I didn't. I didn't want to even give him that time of day. You're gonna have a field day if you have to cover James Krause. Oh my god, I know. Yeah, I'm gonna have a blast with it. But there is that Laura Sanko rumor, so you know. There's a lot of rumors yeah. surrounding Glory. There's a lot of stories. Yeah. It's basically Combination Street in that trading <laughs> camp. <laughs> yeah, that I uh, it was a re- they were a really good gym, but wow, did uh, and James Krause was a boy of mine, but then wow, did they lose all that favor with me? Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. And we'll probably cover it in an INC video at some point. We'll just need to wait and see what happens with the um, legalities. So before we get ourselves into trouble, we're going to talk about the core main event here. We're going up to the light heavyweight division. And it's Jan Blachowicz who is taking on the newcomer to the weight class, Alex Pereira. Now, I think one of the good things about MMA is how different the fan bases can be. Some fighters can like certain fighters. Some fighters can dislike them. Usually there's general consensus, but sometimes you go against the grain when it comes to certain people. And I bring this up because I don't like Alex Pereira. <laughs> Which, and I before you get that. the pitchforks out, I, and I, look, I understand that's something that a lot of people don't agree with, but it doesn't sit well with me that I've seen a lot. I, I'm somebody who favors meritocracy. I like to see fighters build up four or five fight winning streaks to earn the big opportunities, the title fights. And it just doesn't sit well with me to see him fast-tracked to a title match. And all credit in the world to him, he did beat Adesanya fair and, fair and square, so I don't hold that against him. But I think that that opportunity should have gone to somebody who'd earned it a little bit more than him. But also as well, you're a 36-year-old man who for the past decade has gotten these kicks out of being a professional troll. And even though I don't like Izzy, I find a lot of his behavior quite cringe. I'm just a bit like, act your age. Yeah. Uh, it, I, uh, I think it's hilarious that a man, it, like uh, I'm a big fan of the Chappelle show from back in the day. And there's a skit on there where they talk about the player haters ball. It's all the people who are the biggest haters in the world. I think Alex Bejeda could be in that club because he has devoted his entire life into just being trying to be better than Izzy at everything ever. And it's hilarious and just it's so funny to me that this is what this grown man is deciding to do with his life. And I think that is hilarious. Like, well, Izzy beat me in the last fight. You know who also beat him, though? Jan Blahovich. I'm going to beat Jan Vlahovic just because Izzy couldn't. Okay. <laughs> and I completely... I wouldn't be surprised if the UFC booked this match before that reason. I think so, too. I think they're feeding his, feeding this behavior. Like, as I mentioned before, I'm not really a big Adesanya fan. I completely mm-hmm. understand why Adesanya behaved the way he did after that finish. Yeah. Well, I... I, I, I... Like, people had, like, a little bit of a problem with it. I was like, ah. I mean, I just think it's cringy, like most things Adesanya does. Um, and then I was like, him going after his kid was weird, though. Then I remembered his kid, Pajeda's son, that same child. 
uh, was like doing the you know Masvidal thing of like stiffening up and falling in the ring when they were in Glory when Pajeda knocked him out in Glory, and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> I don't condone this, but f that kid, <laughs> like that's you know. <laughs> Like, I totally get it. You know, I don't like Izzy either. But the, the the longer time has passed from that fight, the more I'm like, good for him. You know, good for him. <laughs> and the other thing that Alex Pereira taking this fight has done is it's added another sort of wrinkle of chaos around the light heavyweight division. Like this, like ever since John Jones vacated that belt... And there's a lot of question marks about why John did it. I personally have my own suspicions. It's just been a mess. And mm-hmm. it, in some ways, that could be a good thing for a weight class when you don't have... It's sort of like when the lid's off the basket, are the crabs going to roam free? And sometimes that can be fantastic for a weight class. This is the opposite, though, where we have the sort of... We can have some good matches. I mean, Glover versus Yeevee is up there with one of the best fights of like the past five years. Amazing fight. But it just seems very chaotic because obviously, like, Yarn held the belt for a short space of time and then Glover took it off him. And, like, Glover, a 42 year old who's beaten all these youngsters, does that sort of like knock it back a bit? Jamal Hill getting the belt when a lot of people didn't think he deserved it. It's, it's a bit chaotic and not the good kind yeah. of chaotic. Yeah, it's, it's odd. It, it's like I, we talked about this in the last preview show how flyweight has exploded post mighty mouse yeah and this is the inverse of that like you know really like dominic reyes i'm gonna call it out here dominic reyes ruined this division because he scared john jones away forever (laughs) i'm convinced that's what happened dominic reyes put the fear of God in John Jones and John Jones says there isn't enough cocaine in the world for me to take this fight again and left. Not so That's much, my theory. Not so much Dom Reyes himself but what Dom Reyes represented, the new breed which was catching up. Absolutely. Because Jan beat up pretty bad Dominic Reyes and uh, and it, you, you know John Jones was sitting there shivering when he saw that. Um. That, like, you know, and then here comes Yuri. Here's, hey, Glover is really good. Glover somehow gotten better at 42. Uh, like, Jamala Hill's here. It's like, oh, no. It, Rockage, it was just Ankalaev. Yeah. A Rockage. And Ankalaev is probably in this mix in, at 205 still. And it very interesting, like, how all these names show up. And it's kind of created like a weird standstill because of I, I theorize that that division is cursed last week on the recap show. Um, and uh, that title seems cursed. It seems, feels like you can't hold it without something bad happening. And it's kind of created like a bit of a standstill, essentially. But uh, I feel it's really coincidental that all these big names that are showing up that have been, you know, really tearing it up this new guard and john jones is like uh does anyone want to fight at heavyweight (laughs) so but uh another fan base down (laughs) gotta i gotta i gotta make my enemies how i choose them you know (laughs) i'm trying to think who you just need to uh slug off khabib and then you'll have ticked all the boxes 
If I, I, I technically have one more till bingo. I'm trying to get my bingo and I have to fit in a Valentino one. And then I have bingo diagonal. Uh, <laughs> my fan base is kind of annoyed. You okay with that slacky lavity you've covered it? Oh, that's true. Yeah, I, I should get it by 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 fair. In fairness, Valentina at this point, which because she's not champion, feels like a free square. <laughs> <laughs> it is six forty a.m. and I still got it. Oh. I am visually seeing all of the downfalls for this video when I upload it. I want to stress to all the fans out there of all different of all different fighters. I love most of you. Yes. Most. The ones I don't love, I'll never tell. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've always been the belief that like there's nothing wrong with sort of like having likes or dislikes when it comes to fighters. Um as yeah, long absolutely. as you can sort of frame it in the right way and just not be a hater about it. Yeah, for me it's all humor. I'm just I'm just, you know, playfully joking. If I didn't joke with you, if I or like that's my I always tell people because I'm a clown. I like the joking with people in real life. And I always tell people, if I joke with you, that means I like you. And then so, and it, without fail, someone goes, is that why you don't joke with? Yes, it is. That's why I don't joke with that person. You know, uh, Let, I have respect. So Let's try and get this back on tangent here. Let's talk about the fight in a bit more detail here. So uh, Alex Pereira is taking on Jan Blachowicz, 29 and 9 record. He also has the one draw, which is his last fight up against Ankalaev. Um, we talked about that what, back in January when we talked about yeah. uh, Glover versus Jamal Hill, that you personally thought that Ankalaev did enough to win that fight. Um, I mm. personally thought that Jan did enough to win the first three rounds. And personally, I thought that a draw was the right result because it was 10th uh, Ankalaev in that last round. I um, thought I scored a draw as well. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I think, we both, I think we're both on the same page because uh, I thought Jan was comfortably winning until the fifth round. Um, but Jan is back into the title mix here, potentially, because I've got the feeling that whoever wins this fight is going to fight Yiri by the end of the year. I see that mm. being the... That will either headline the January card, or if they don't get Connor and Chandler together, that headlines December. Yiri versus so December. The this. So December. <laughs> that fight's never happening. Yeah. And... We talked earlier on about Tony Ferguson being like 39 years old and really being sort of like a shadow of his former self. Jan Blachowicz is 40 years old and still seems to be performing at a really good level. Do you think this is just the benefits that come with fighting at a higher weight? Or do you think there's something that he has... Has he sort of worked around sort of the issues of father time to get this sort of knack for himself? Like, how has Jan Blachowicz gone from being a guy who would have been cut if he lost to Devin Clark to being a former champion. I have a theory about this. And so if you look at the ages of fighters at heavyweight and light heavyweight, then you, you notice that the average age of fighters is significantly higher usually as you go up. And I think a lot of that is because, uh, at like athleticism is 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 great at those weight classes but it isn't too common so when your athleticism is failing you can kind of get away with a lot of that and those weight classes also historically aren't that technical so you know having just 
essentially old man strength can kind of carry you those and like the young guard isn't always coming in to just you know take over essentially it's very odd when like i i, I can't remember the last time the the new guard i think like like both both divisions have a new guard kind of coming in but it's not that big compared to like I, god i imagine in two years time featherweight and lightweight and like the all those lower divisions have like a whole new cast yes. of top 10 guys you know whereas i feel like in two years time taitui voss is still going to be like number eight you know and uh it, it just i feel like age is merely a number at these higher weight classes in a weird way um I think what's more important is the number of fights and experience someone has at these upper weight classes. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, we mentioned Derek Lewis earlier. We, we brought up his age, but I brought up like how he's coming up on 40 fights. That with his age, like, okay, like that's the 40 fights is the bigger one for me. Do you think you need to be a smarter fighter at the heavier weights as well? Because the risk is so much higher. I, I, <laughs> I say that. But uh, I think it would be more important, but I also feel like intelligence can take you farther because uh, I are the two greatest, you know, you and me differ on opinion on who the greatest heavyweight is. But I think the one constant between our two picks of Stipe and Fedor is their intelligence. They were incredibly smart and adaptable fighters. And I, I we wouldn't, I, I think we both, them having that level of, in-ring fight IQ helped carry them to that even higher level of greatness to where when people talk about the greatest heavyweights ever, people put those two usually at the very top, you know? So I think intelligence takes you much further in the higher weight classes than it does at the lower weight classes because call me crazy and I don't need to disrespect either weight class. I feel like fighters fight much more intelligently at the fighter weight classes naturally Whereas at two at heavyweight, uh, for example, like <laughs> poor dude Parker Porter is fighting, and uh, against Harry Hunsucker, it's like what are they going to do? The most rudimentary, basic techniques and uh, you know what's it called? Uh, like it's not going to be the most intellectual chessboard esque match as if we saw you know like Matt Schnell fight or uh, like a Matt Schnell fight at like you know, or something like that. And it's, I, I, but I feel, so there's less intelligence I feel like used at the higher divisions, but if you do have it, it is a huge, huge attribute to have. And that's like something Jan has. I think Jan, he's fighting smarter as he's gotten older and he's kind of catered his style around, you know, what he needs to do with his, like kind of similar to what we saw with Bobby Green. Bobby Green is fighting a style that fits with his current athleticism. And Jan's been doing that for a while. Like he's been fighting herky-jerky and using his biggest physical attribute, which is his strength, to the fullest level. And he needs to be smart as well because surely, bearing in mind Alex Pereira's question marks over his grappling, he's surely going to try and take this fight to the ground. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I, I have it here. The last time I saw Jan Blachowicz do something stupid, like outright stupid, was the Thiago Santos yes. fight when he rushed him. And this fight could be that way. That's kind of how I feel. Like I think I could see that scenario happening if he decides to just, ah, why not? 
but I, I think this is going to be a lot of grindy wrestling whole, you know, that's at least that's what the game plan should be, you know, in my mind, uh, because there's a big difference between a very good striker, a law, you know, Oh, you know, Dominic Reyes, Alexander Rakic, um, Johnny Walker, like there's a difference between those level strikers and then a glory kickboxing guy that has found a way to convert his style pretty decently well into MMA. And a guy who at 205 isn't going to have the durability issues that he did in middleweight. Oh, yeah. So that it's a it's a big concern for me. Like if I was a Jan Blachowicz fan, I would be concerned. Like Alex Pereira just he has that off button. He has that power in a way that not a lot of fighters in the UFC do. Um, mm-hmm. And even though I do have severe question marks over how good his grappling is, I mean, Israel Adesanya took him down. And Izzy has never been known as a great grappler by any means. Um, mm-hmm. So Jan, who has a history of grappling, we saw him beat Krylov by basically wrestling him and then getting the submission. So Jan is capable of taking this fight to the ground. And I think if he does... He could be make very comfortable work of Alex there. Mm-hmm. My concern is, is he going to be able to do that? Or is Pereira going to find that off switch against a 40-year-old guy who has been rocked and dropped before? Yeah, he's been KO'd before. Um, I, I, I think of this fight a little bit similar as to the Izzy fight with Jan. Um. Because Izzy is probably around the same level of striker as Pajeda. I think that's very fair to say. If not, he, if, if, either they're equal or Izzy's better striker, in my opinion, But in terms of technique. But Pajeda has, like, the most magical level of power I've ever seen in a fighter have. Like, because his isn't just timing. Like, Conor McGregor is a one... I, dislike the guy and you know and all that noise we, we all you know, like rag on him constantly but conor mcgregor has one of the best timings i've ever seen in a fighter um but he didn't have the mega bomb you know concentrated you know oppenheimer-esque power in his fists like in jose aldo pajeda seems like a mix of both of those guys like he has that oppenheimer power with that barbie timing and <laughs> Uh, and I, uh, you know, he's, it's just, uh, it's an interesting one. And it's funny. I say that this fight kind of has me on edge because I actually consider Pajeda to technically be the worst champion ever. He's technically the worst champion ever in terms of, uh, as a, as a fighter, (laughs) like this guy got a belt. Like he can't wrestle at all. His grappling is literally zero. Yeah. favorable matchmaking will do that you know but um it, it's interesting i i think oh, man um there you know we said it with tony ferguson earlier how tony ferguson's kind of a throwback guy alex Pajeda seems like a throwback guy alex Pajeda seems like a guy we would see in pride you know yes the one touch of pride. death KO. yeah he's very pride-esque to me and no no grappling whatsoever but for some reason here he is to one shot ko everybody like almost like mark hunt melvin manhoofy in a sense and uh but somehow scarier than both like he has that like fearsome aura to him 
Do you right. think working with Glover could possibly be an advantage? Because Glover did have that win over Yarn back at UFC 267. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly, Glover did that using a grappling-based game, which I don't expect to see from Max Pereira. But do you think some of the tips and tricks that Glover used to gain the advantage, do you think that could maybe apply in this? Um, I'm sure, that I, I, if I remember correctly, Glover took him down pretty early. There was very little striking setup. So if there was a little bit more striking setup for the takedowns and the grappling, I would be like, oh, uh, what's it called? Glover probably goes, oh, hey, like he likes the uppercut when he's doing this. He was doing this. Remember, remember, you know, because it's one thing to watch tape. It's another thing to be in there altogether. But I don't think there was enough striking in there for him to give him a ton of clues. Um, but he can definitely tell him, hey, I took him down, but this guy is this kind of strong or he's not that strong here. Like his strength, he doesn't know how to apply it when I have him here. So remember that, like, um, it would be really funny to see Pajeda fight him exactly like Glover come out double legging him. Uh, I would, I would start dying laughing, but I, I, I don't know how much the Glover thing helps. Time to put your money where your mouth is. Which way are you going with this one? Because this is the one that is splitting a lot of people. This is basically, is Pereira going to get that big shot before Jan takes him down? I think I think Jan gets a hold of him. Holly homes him for a little bit to build up the lactic acid in his body, takes him down, and just wears on him. It'll be similar to the Izzy fight, but much more ground-based, a lot less striking and feints um, with... Joe Rogan and everybody else on commentary going like, this is the thing. This is the thing we don't know about him for three rounds is a, um, and I I think it's a yawn decision, but a terrifying one. It'll be one of those fights where I, I I could, I could see yawn winning comfortably, but at the end of it, we go, okay. (laughs) I'm going to be going a little against the grin. I am picking Alex Pereira. Uh, because, again, it's just it's just that power. And against a 40-year-old guy, I think that's a big concern as well. Um, I think, other thing to bear in mind, we talked about altitude. Wrestling is going to take a lot out of you, especially if you're a guy that's not used to doing it. It was one of the reasons I feel like Asanya lost the first fight, because you could tell Izzy was just knackered by the end of that fifth round. Um, so I think that's maybe a concern for Jan, that if he does go grappling heavy, he's going to need a lot of cardio to try and get it done. Um, and also as well, just obviously like the, it's almost like that meme from Breaking Bad with like Jesse with Alex Pereira. It's just like, he can't keep getting away with this. Yeah. I can see a situation where he finishes Yarn without ever seeing the grappling get tested. He can't keep, remember in his, in his debut fight, he got laid and prayed hard in round one and he just said F it and came out round two with a flying knee out of nowhere. Like, so I could see that happening. Um, I, I, I'll I bring this up to you. What if Jan, how, on a scale of 1 to 10, how likely do you think it is for Jan just to put that Polish power on that Pajeda chin and finish it like that? It's possible. On the I, could, I could see a situation where I could see something similar to Ruckold, where I see a little mm-hmm. bit of wall installing, and as Jan breaks, then comes the big uppercut because that yeah. sort of rage, that was where Izzy caught him in the first fight. That's where he finished him in the second fight. 
that sort of up against the fence, that sort of close quarters range, that has been a weakness for Pereira when it comes to striking. Yeah, he hasn't. He, he his stance is chin up, hands low because he wants to invite you in. And I wonder if that could get him caught, if like maybe a takedown feint into an uppercut or a left hand. I, I wonder if because I think I think both of these guys have that it factor and power. But I think there's a, just a difference in the P- Alex Pajeda technique, you yeah. know, and power. Like he 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 legitimately might be the pound for pound biggest hitter I've ever seen. I like, personally go. I personally go Carwin. Uh, Carwin, yeah, but he was a heavyweight, and there's something weird to me about a guy at middleweight who touches you and like Shane Sean Strickland went flying across like. He went flying across, like the octagon, to the point where I, I halfway expected Shawn Michaels to come out of nowhere and like, you know, super kick him, Shelton Benjamin style, with how how much distance he got, and I think that is very telling. Uh, there's something weird about when he touches you. I feel like if he were to like, I feel like if he were to hit a heavy bag, it would just explode. <laughs> I, I don't. There's something odd about it. Carwin has to be up there because Carwin had the biggest hands I've ever seen. <laughs> they looked like the Hulk. We're going to talk about our main event now. It is the BMF title, which is back up for grabs, which I'm sure everybody watching this is looking forward to. It is Dustin Poirier taking on Justin Gagey, a rematch from their bout in 2018, which was one of the fights of the year. I think it was Nashville where it took place. So we're going from Nashville to Salt Lake City for these two matches. Uh, betting odds for this one, you can get Dustin Poirier at minus 135. Justin Gagey is plus 115. And we'll start with the question which I sort of brought up right at the start of the segment here, which is the reintroduction of the BMF belt, which I think it's safe to say that this is being used as a marketing tool by the UFC. They didn't have a title fight booked for the end of July and have sort of pulled this one out the woodwork to try and give it the sort of glitz and glamour that you would expect from a UFC pay-per-view main event. It worked first time around Mm. with Jorge Masvidal and Nate Diaz, but I think that was helped by having two guys who, very casual friendly, Madison Square Garden, and it was always presented as a bit of of fun, a little bit of silliness. This obviously doesn't have that. Is it going to be as effective as a marketing tool? I really wonder because I myself wonder how big of a draw Justin and Dustin are like, how big are the Ustins like as a draw? Like, because Dustin, I think has the Connor rub because you know, he, he smashed, he smashed Connor twice in a row. Okay. So does Justin have that like level of draw power, you know? Cause I mean, Habib did really well because of the Connor rub. How does, what does Dustin have that too? Historically, um, and if like, does Justin have that? Like has Justin, I think he's only main evented like two pay-per-views. So like, I kind of wonder, does he have that kind of pull? Um, so I'm really curious what the, what the buy rate's going to be like for this one. I've got some stats um, here in regards to like but... pay-per-view buys. Um, so Ooh. Dustin Poirier okay. post Connor, his only pay-per-view main event was against Charles Oliveira. UFC 269, which I think did about yeah. half a million, about 500k. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Tony versus Justin Gagey, I believe, was about 700 and 500 for Khabib. But you've got to bear in mind that they were pandemic cards, which on the whole, they seemed mm-hmm. to do better numbers because I think obviously people couldn't go anywhere else or they just had to sort of like spend money on a pay-per-view because the UFC was pretty much the only game in town. Yeah, and also look at the undercard on that Tony uh, Justin card because that is probably my second favorite MMA card, of, like UFC card ever in terms of value and like, you know, just level of, you know, entertainment. I think that card is fantastic. Greg Hardy versus Jorgen um, DeCastro. Yeah, that is fair though. You got me there. <laughs> you think you're uh, special. But you it, do. We're, that's coming. I hope it does too. Fingers crossed. Uh, uh, going to be a hell of a challenge for you. But I think, funny enough, I wonder if they're going to bust out The Rock. Because remember The Rock came out and, you know, like he like, gave the belt to Masvidal. But I wonder if that is going to help or hurt him or hurt this hurt their case because you have Tanner Bozer solidifying himself as a boy stable guy permanently for me, talking about how the rock shoes sucks and the sponsors suck. <laughs> and you also have you you also have the box office beatdown. Or let me rephrase this: the box office smackdown that Black Adam took. You know, the box office and the fans unanimously turn that some bitch sideways and. <laughs> I'm not going to uh, criticize the amount of wrestling puns on here. And also as well, the XFL, that failed as well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know. All I'm saying is there's only one way out of it. Things haven't been great for him, you know? I think the biggest highlight of Dwayne Johnson recently is uh, in the cameo I got from my friend Anthony. I got him a Boss Rutten cameo. And uh, he talked about how much of a fan of The Rock he was in it. So that's probably the best thing that happened to The Rock for a while is he still got a boss, you know, El Wapo. But uh, getting back on track here yeah, when well, it comes it to called? this Understood. fight. Um, yeah. So one little I, start. I was doing a little bit of research for this fight. And I found this start. I think one of the big MMA journalists, I don't know which one it was, posted this. But they said that since the first fight between Poirier and Gagey, uh, both of them have gone 4-2 in the UFC since won the interim title, beat Michael Chandler, and their two losses came to Khabib and Charles Oliveira. That's hilarious. I I just not thought about those two losses, both by submission. Um, hmm. So it's... it's this fight is going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. So I, I assume that you've done what I expect most people have done, which is rewatch the first fight. So... What's your sort of memories from watching that one back? Was there anything that sort of you remembered differently? Things that you sort of like were really amplified this time around watching it again? When Gaethje was eye-poking Dustin and Dustin was complaining about it and Dustin literally just went in there and eye-poked Justin Gaethje right back, I was dying laughing and I realized how mad both these guys were and I went, (laughs) we still have another round and a half to go. This is this fight is still 
that fight is still a 10 out of 10. Like that is still a 10 out of 10 fight for me. Uh, and I know probably... we were planning to do a retro review. Unfortunately, it's not going to come out, but we were planning to do a retro review for yeah. a Dustin Poirier card. And there was a lot of people who were voting for the Gagey fight. Because that fight's just that good. Like, I, honestly, uh, probably my picks for the three most exciting guys ever, um, at like at the lower weight classes, it, I, I think Justin Gaethje's number one, but Dustin and Tony Ferguson got to be up there historically because Dustin Poirier has a lot of just, in my opinion, 10 out of 10 fights. The last two Connor fights for a sick reason. And, um, but on the, I think what this was, this was the winner was Max Holloway too. That, that fight is like, I think that fight's better than the Kelvin Izzy card for fight personally. Uh, and, um, that that fight is so good, but this this fight should be incredible. Well, we certainly I, hope because so because their first one is fantastic. Yeah, the first one's fantastic, and that is pre Gaethje going. All right, let me try to be a technical fighter, and him being dumb and kind of he just got caught. You know, he got caught in in this crazy back and forth fight. I think Dustin was always going to catch him. I know a lot of. Uh, Trevor Whitman and Gaethje have said that like, oh, I got complacent in there. He was complacent and he got caught. No, I think Dustin was always going to catch him. Dustin showed that he was just a little bit better defensively and was taking a lot less bombs than uh, a lot less clean hits than Justin was. Um, but the low kicks of Gaethje were doing good work in there. Uh, that fight's just so it's so poetically beautiful. I could describe it like like I'm writing poetry. Like oh, pure violence, ecstasy for me. It's beautiful stuff. It's a and fantastic I'm hoping this fight. One is. It is a fantastic yeah. fight. And yeah, I hope some of the technical limitations you sort of brought up with Justin Gagey, because Gagey was back then he was his WSOF self. He was a little bit reckless. He liked to yeah. try and make it. He sort of like use the dirty boxing, target the kicks in the clinch, which was I I think is one of his biggest weapons is the way he targets his kicks. And we saw that especially with, in my opinion, like I've always been against the grin with a lot of people. I think Justin Gaethje's best fight was the Eddie Alvarez fight. Because you saw Eddie like going after the body and like really sort of like turning it up on Justin in those first two rounds. And then the kicks starting to add up and the sort of what's going to break first? Is Gaethje going to be able to take all these headshots? Or is Eddie going to reach the stage where he just can't take any more and has to go down to the ground. I love that sort of tension. Um, but that Justin yeah. Gagey is a thing of the past. That's a relic of 2018. This guy now is a lot yes, more technical. He's still got that aggression. He's still got that power. And I'm interested to see how that plays up against Dustin because I don't know about you. I feel like it's almost as if Dustin is... And I, I, if I'm wrong about this, and I do apologize, and there probably people will come back to me and say, oh, well, you got that one wrong, which we all do on these sort of prediction shows. I kind of feel like Dustin's taken his foot off the pedal a little bit. It was almost after the Charles Oliveira fight happened, and he lost that one. He almost sort of seems resigned to the fact that I'm not going to be champion, and I'm just going to go in to have like some entertaining fights and have a bit of fun. Whereas... Justin, in my opinion, still has that hunger, and he showed that against Fizayev. 
yeah, he he seems like the J- Justin has outright said he goes. I only got like one or two years left. I I've been at this way too long and way too hard. He goes, but I'm getting that title before I go. Like I'm, I'm there's nothing's going to stop me from getting that title. And I'm like, oh, that's that shows that fire is still there, you know. And Dustin hasn't really talked like that. He's been like, yeah, let's go out there and have fun. Different vibes. I definitely see where you're coming from here. And it also plays a part in what I think could be one of the big X factors going into this fight, which is you mentioned before about Vadum versus Kane and how Vadum really mm-hmm. acknowledged how big the altitude was going to be in a way that Kane didn't. I've seen a lot of comments from Dustin Poirier where he's been quite dismissive of the altitude and he's going up against a guy who trains and lives in Colorado. Yeah. I'm actually really curious. I'm looking this up now. Uh, what is the sea level of Louisiana? Well, he'll be training in Florida. It's eight feet below. Oh, he does train in Florida. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to look at Florida on the sea level. Because I think, I think they're really low, if I remember right. I mean... Miami is <laughs> Miami's really low. Uh the sea level. It's humid out there, so that might help with breathing, but uh I think going from a really low altitude to a high altitude like that could be pretty rough on you. Yeah. And you have a guy that's going to run at you and throw everything but the kitchen sink at you. What, what would you say is Dustin Poirier's biggest strengths? What do you think is his yeah. biggest avenue to victory? Can he just repeat the same game plan against the new technical Gagey? Uh, I think he can make. I think he can frustrate Gagey. I think he's a. I think his best thing about him is how. I mean, I think he's probably the best boxer in at lightweight right now, if not most of MMA. Um, he's got like a really smooth like shoulder rolls and. You know, like, and how he defends himself, like, defends himself with punches. He has, like, a Philly shell, which is, like, one of the first guys in MMA to really do it and do it that well. Like, he had Max Holloway in between rounds of their second fight, him going, my hands hurt. Uh, he's he's blocking weird. I don't like it. My hands hurt. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's crazy how he'll put his elbows and shoulder, hard shoulder bones in the way of your punches to block and just hurt your hands over time and but i think against justin justin's a little more patient willing to look for it um but he will sometimes throw himself out of position and i think that's where dustin can really really hurt him um because it seems hard to catch dustin clean yes you know i mean connor connor did catch him clean with one shot but connor like I said, I rag on him all the time. Connor can still relatively go, you know. Uh, Connor's still a fantastic striker, you know, even if he's very much declined, I think. But um, it, it's going to be hard for Gaethje to, I think, land that clean shot against him. but And then add in the fact that it's an altitude and five rounds. 
it's going to be interesting to see how much altitude plays into this fight, even though it is a lower weight class, because in my mind, I feel like it's, I feel like for Justin, it's just going to get easier or get harder as the fight goes on and it'll be easier for Dustin. But when now that you bring up that Dustin doesn't care about the sea level thing, he thinks it's nothing. It, it kind of makes you wonder like, is, is this going to be a flip where, Dustin is the one gassing first. It's going to be, it's really interesting, but I think the best thing he brings to the table for this matchup is that Philly shell defense he employs. And he would also be between the two, the guy more willing to take it to the ground if he wants to try and go for the, yeah. So I think that's a, that's an interesting sort of wrinkle to add to uh, the mix as well. Yeah. He he has an underrated wrestling game for sure, and he's very good grappler. Uh, one of those grapplers you never really see grapple. He's mostly known for his striking, but no, he can grapple. Uh, I'm never going to let this go. Charles Oliveira had to cheat to keep him on the ground because Charles Oliveira was, you know, darn near knuckle deep into his gloves. <laughs> I think it was in the second round. Yeah, second round because... Dustin gave Charles Oliveira a lot of problems in that first round. Like, I think he dropped him, like, yeah, twice. Yeah, almost a 10. Yeah, it was almost a 10-8, if not a 10-8, flat out. We have got to cover but 269. Charles Oliveira going to Charles Oliveira. We have got to cover 269 for a retro oh. review one day. I wonder why. <laughs> is there a fight, is there a a fight on that fight card in, in particular you're interested in? Yeah, I, um... It's sort of like it's like like it's sort of like my version of uh, OSW trying to do it with the films that they uh, they just try and get the films over <laughs> and over again. Okay, if we cover that card, can we cover uh, two seventy seven though? No deal. <laughs> okay, well, I tried, guys. I tried. Trying right. to get this back on the tangent though, this? because we do this? have a short space of time for this one. Um, this is a fight that a lot of fans are looking forward to. Which way do you think it's going to go? And what do you think the winner is going to gain from getting this fight? Obviously, like the BMF belt is up for grabs, but bearing in mind that Charles Oliveira versus Markachev, the rematch is taking place in October. Is this just a glorified number one contender match? Uh, is the re appetite really there for to see the winner of this fight, Markachev? I think if Dustin wins, he's probably fighting Dariush. And I think if Justin wins, they might offer him a fight to stay busy. But they'll probably just want to give him a title shot, like, afterwards. You know? And hopefully their in-ring encounter isn't as awkward as Izzy's with Duplessis. Yes. Yeah, I was uncomfortable. <laughs> that, image in my head, that image in my head is... I We were sitting there and just like, hmm, okay... This is happening, huh? And it's still going on? Like, uh, I'm surprised they didn't cut it right there. You know? but, yeah, I because I have to defend uh, MMA a lot of the time because I think there is still a lot of negative perceptions about the fighters who take part in the sport, unfortunately. And when you see Adesanya and Drickers bringing up those kind of conversations, it's a bit, it's a bit unsettling. It sort of emboldens a lot of the views that people have of the sport. Yeah, it, it, it definitely hurts a little bit, especially me, known as the clown and joker, 
who I always joke about the sport, even with people who don't really go. And then they go, this is the stuff you're joking about. Hold on. Hold on here. I'm not touching that. I'm just removing myself from the situation. I'll, I'll, I'll mention it because it's just that awkward, (laughs) but uh, it's no, I'm not, I I won't touch that topic with a 10 foot pole. (laughs) A topic I do want you to touch on is who do you think is going to win this one? I think I, you know, I, I initially had Dustin by a late stoppage or decision, but hearing that he doesn't care about the altitude, I'm, I'm changing sides. I think Justin probably could get a stoppage here. I'm in the same boat. I'm I going think. to go for Justin Gagey yeah. late stoppage. Yeah, I, I think the fact that Dustin doesn't care about the altitude, and Dustin has a very good cardio, the fact that he doesn't care makes me a little uneasy and a little fearful, admittingly. Especially because he's Louisiana is very low to the low below sea level, as is Miami, or like as is parts of Florida. So I go, okay, um, that's a big jump for you. So on that cheery note, it is all the time that we have here for the UFC 291 preview show. I have to say, Joe, I didn't expect us to get as much out of this one. Obviously, I have other commitments. You've got to record the um, post fight recap which uh, hopefully you'll be doing straight after this. Mm -hmm. So I was wanting to try and make this one maybe a little bit shorter. I thought it would be, but we've still got a good uh, one hour and 40 minutes out of this. So credit to ourselves. We're just too talented, too talented, too charismatic to be contained like that, I suppose. (laughs) And we want to say a big thank you to everyone who is continuing to support the channel um unfortunately some of our more recent videos haven't really done all that well but people who have been watching it we want to say a big thank you and we do always want to try and make the channel as good as we possibly can so any sort of feedback is greatly appreciated um if you want to contact us we've got an instagram twitter and patreon all up there at the top of the screen here joe if people want to talk to you specifically where are the best places to do so the best places is Twitter uh, because that's where I usually keep my uh, professional, you know, I, I kind of I've kind of almost transitioned it to like a mostly professional account on there, and uh, so Loco Joe Seven at Loco Joe Seven I believe it is, and um, yeah, it's a uh, I don't tweet as much as I should. I find myself always going, oh, I should tweet this and this to kind of you know boost everything and kind of make myself a little bit more visible. But I'm always there if you want to shoot me a DM and have some chats about the show and, you know, or you can tell me, Hey, your jokes are corny. And I'm going to probably tell you, yeah, I know. Sadly, I wish I was funnier guys. I try. (laughs) And we have had some people who are asking about the retro reviews. They want to know what we could be seeing between now and the end of the year. Mm. Yeah. We have a lot of pretty good ideas though, of what we're doing. There is one I need to shoot. Probably going to try and shoot it tomorrow morning, and I'm very excited about this one. Uh, I, I would you like me to give a little hint at what the we next shall one do, looks yes. like it's going to be? Okay, uh, I you know I'm a big fan of promotions uh, of other promotions outside of the UFCs, and another thing I really enjoy I like a really good low kick, you know, in fights, and I think that's enough, you know. I think that's probably enough of a of a little hint there. 
I will say I am looking forward to seeing what you can do with this one, Joe, because um, I personally love this promotion as well. And hopefully you can tune in when it actually does go live on the main INC channel. I'm working on the next video as well. We're going to be celebrating... It's the latest in our MMA's year series. So we look at a segment of a fighter's career, look at whether or not it was the success or failure that a lot of people make it out to be, which we have done with this one. It is a little bit of a semi-sequel as well. So there are some clues for you there. Uh, so that's all to look forward to on the main channel. On the live channel, we got uh, Joe's post-fight reaction of USC London, which should be on right now. And in three weeks' time, we'll be back here to talk about UFC 292 as we go from Salt Lake City to Boston. Alderman Sterling back in action, potentially his last title offense of bantamweight up against Sean O'Malley. So that's all to look forward to. This is the INC. I've been Carl Bainbridge. That's been Joe Neal. And we hope to see you again soon. Bye-bye for now.